And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're broadcasting from a fairly quiet state capitol today. Thanks for tuning in. It's true, just about everybody has gone home. The legislature finished its session on time Monday night after passing a $72 billion two-year state budget and a host of policy measures. The DFL ran the table at the state capitol this year with virtually all their major goals passed and now being signed into law. And the person who is signing all those bills and who has pushed a lot of that agenda is with me now to talk more about what the DFL majority has done these past five months and what might come next. DFL Governor Tim Walls. Governor, thanks for being here. Glad to be here, Mike. Let me uh, start by with the one thing you didn't sign, and that was yesterday afternoon, yeah. this uh, uh, bill that would have given a raise and some working uh, rules for uh, drivers in the ride-sharing services like Lyft and Uber. Uh, not only your first gov- uh, your first veto of this session, but the first veto since you became governor. Why did you veto that bill? It is. Well, first of all, I, I think all of us acknowledge we've got a, a rapidly changing economy. These gig economy workers, as they're called, folks that are independent contractors doing things like these ride-sharing um, jobs. Uh, I think it's important that we make sure that we're protecting their rights. I think they're bringing up con- uh, concerns about pay. They're bringing up concerns about how they're let go, safety concerns and those things. All of those things are valid. My concern was that, that this bill came up late in the session. It came up at the very end. And I don't think it uh, was broad enough stakeholder input. And what I mean by that is we got letters from disability rights groups. We got uh, from domestic violence survivors from Dakota County, different things like that of understanding that we have the drivers, we have the riders, and we have those uh, those other stakeholders. And I think the reason for this was, and then of course the companies themselves, and whether, you know, as some said they're threatening or not, they, they simply, they did note that they would leave. My concern is how do we make this work for everybody? So I, I think the best course of action was is to back back away from this. We created a task force that will we'll study this. And when people say, well, what do you need another task force here? There's no data on this. Seattle has done this and New York City has done it. There's no data. Like when I ask, well, how much do they make? How much is the company making? What are what are these numbers? What are these numbers? It's, it's a black hole. There is nothing there. We need to get Minnesota-specific data and then deal with this. And I just want to make it clear, this was not a veto to say that the, the – the drivers did not have a point. They certainly do. I certainly empathize with it. Um, I just think we can do a little better job of crafting this because I think what's going to happen is, and I think this, to be honest with you, a lot of groups watching this, this could be the model for the rest of the country because everybody's struggling. When I mean everybody, every other state and the federal government's struggling how to deal with the gig workers. Let me uh, cast your mind back, not just five months, but a year ago, May of 2022, you were trying to finish out a session. Yep. You were being endorsed down in Rochester for your second term yep. by the DFL. Uh, that session ended, no major deals. Yep. Big surplus still sitting yep. there on the table. Did you ever imagine at that point that you would be where you are now with basically having passed every major initiative that Democrats proposed? Well, I think to be candid, we might have hoped so, but no, not really. And remember, this that was... Uh, pre-Dobbs decision that kind of changed the political landscape. Uh, I thought we had a fair deal. And again, I remind listeners that that I signed off on the deal and the Republican Senate walked away. Um, it was full repeal of Social Security that we compromised to. It was a, a 4-4-4 deal. Four on spending, evenly split. Four on tax cuts. Four on a rainy day fund. So $12 billion of the $17 billion surplus was a carryover from last year. Uh, 
I do think it was a transformational moment, though, in that Minnesotans wanted to get things done. You've heard me use this in my inaugural address. The time for gridlock needs to be over. Don't go to special sessions. Get things done. I did start to feel it this summer, and I I think candidly, I think the Dobbs decision and the decision of the Republican Party decide to fight culture wars rather than things impacting people's lives um, made a big difference. But it's hard. Legislation's hard. It's hard to bring these things in. And these these were issues that I think are not controversial. But we haven't been able to even have a hearing on gun control in decades, and we got two really important pieces through. We haven't had a conversation on climate change in a real aggressive manner since Governor Paul Enney did it in 2007. So while I was hopeful this would happen, um, I think we got busy organizing, and I'm going to give the thanks to two incredible legislative leaders who understand that there's an art and a science to this, and, and with Melissa Hortman and Carrie Dietzik, they figured out how to bring a caucus along with them. And a lot of uh, support from Democrats in the legislature for your agenda, yeah. for for the spending of the seventeen yep. billion dollars for the tax cuts, few tax yep. increases. Yep. What about the voters? Do you think they're with you now? Well, I think so. When you poll these things, whether it's our paid family medical leave that we put in, becoming the 12th state to do that, uh, that polls 70, 80%. People think they should be home if they've got chemotherapy and not lose their job, those types of things. Reproductive rights, all of those things are are real, I think. The I watched the Republicans focus on and say, we're going to go to the election next year. We're going to talk about this. I think what I saw Democrats do is focus on using political capital to improve lives. So I think they're going to be there. Now, just to be clear, they the Republicans keep talking about spending. Checks going back to people is spending. Tax cuts are spending. And while they said, well, it's a 30% increase in state government, I'm sure all media outlets next year are going to report there will be at least a 20% drop-off because of the one-time spending that goes back down. So next year, state government is going to shrink by a record number. The reality of it was we had a unique situation caused by the pandemic where global profits, especially amongst corporations, were up. We had a one-time surplus that is going to now tackle things like feeding our children. It's going to make sure we're adding... uh, the money that needed to be done around some infrastructure projects um, and improving quality of life around things like paid family and medical leave. These are all really positive proposals. Oh, let me ask you about the tax rebates because that was something you did campaign on. And uh, at one point, I think you proposed a $2,000 rebate and now we're down to $260 for an individual who made less than 75,000, you know, 520 for a couple. Um, Are the rebates too small? Well, it goes up to a thousand if you got two kids, about thirteen hundred if you go up to three children on this. And I, I think the issue on it is, is that I thought maybe a little bit more of direct money back to them, but we compromised on that. What we got out of that was uh, a larger and a more permanent child tax credit that we obviously advocated for too. We got some renters' credit was a priority of the House and Senate. Um, so, and I remind Minnesotans that the vast majority of folks fall into that category of getting those. For every fifty dollars, the checks go up. It costs $200 million. And so we spent, um, you know, and it's, it is true. We had the largest tax cuts in this, but we also have things that needed dedicated funding. So I understand when, if you ask the average person, my family asked me this. So we have this surplus. Why are we doing a five cent gas tax over four years? Because it generates the money that's going to be necessary to fix the roads. We know what it's going to cost to fix our roads. We know that over the next 20 years, what's going to need to be done. The one time money doesn't do that. So, 
I, I personally thought we could have probably done a little more in the direct on that, but the trade-off was we got some other things. And what about the, ch- the um, child tax credit that your administration says will yeah. reduce child poverty by 33 percent? Why is it so important to do that? Well, I think this is the linchpin, and, and I got to be honest, this is a group that doesn't have a constituency that comes to the Capitol to lobby. These are the most disadvantaged of our children. These are folks living in deep poverty in many cases, but it can go up to up to $90,000. The reason this is so important is, and the research showed this during COVID when we had the federal tax credit, that during the time of the federal tax credit, childhood poverty reduced in the country by a quarter percent. Now, many of these states pulled these policies off and it popped back up. What this will ensure is the early starts, the ability to be able to get that early childhood education, the brain development. It makes sure that those families aren't in the deepest of poverty and these children then, and we know that when we do this, we see less need for social services. We see less interaction with the criminal justice system. We see higher achievement. And for us, the reason that this is both morally important, that we need to stay competitive in this state. We can't let anybody fall through the cracks and we have to create the best workforce for the future. And just so people recognize this, this is, and this is a tax cut. So people out there are listening. This is the biggest chunk of what we did on the tax cuts is going back to these families that have our children. And it is a significant number, even though Minnesota is a top five state for lowest childhood poverty. We will end up being the best in the country on this. And this child tax credit is not only the best in the country, it may be the best in the world because I'm talking to these ambassadors, some of the leaders globally, that this is the belief. You tackle it on the front end. This is how you reduce education costs. This is how you reduce health care costs. This is how you reduce criminal justice you know, interactions. So that's why we felt it was so important. And will these tax credits be permanent or is this part of that yes. one-time Yes, nope, they're permanent. And that's where the cost was. That's where they said we went in. This, this is, is an ongoing cost. Um, and just so people know how this is, this is going to be an advance that these will be sent out every three months. So it's not that folks are going to have to wait to the end of the year. And it can be up to $1,750 for each child. And it's, it's unlimited. So if we've got a family of three living in relatively deep poverty under $50,000, um, they're going to see this direct tax credit coming back to their families. That's going to mean the kids are going to eat. They're going to stay in their homes. They're going to get the extra things they need. Um, and, and for those out there wondering, well, I'm not getting anything on this, you're going to get a well-qualified workforce. You're going to get savings in a lot of the social service sides of things. So it's, I, I think it is the, going to be the envy of the rest of the country, and I think it's going to be the template for the rest of the country. Governor Tim Walz is our guest today as we're looking back at the legislative session that ended this week and looking ahead to what might come next. Governor, let me uh, ask you about a couple other things. I think you're going to sign that bill to legalize marijuana next week. I am. Um, we're anticipating this might be a a, a bit of a, a fanfare type of event. And uh, I am going to, though, give credit where credit is due. 25 years ago, one of my predecessors in Governor Ventura advocated for this. I think at that time, Minnesota would have become the second state. We are now the 22nd state. Uh, Governor Ventura will be at that signing event. And I go back to this again. Prohibition did not work. I'm deeply concerned with what in some of the things that are being illegally sold. We're going to expunge records. Um, We're going to set up a a regulatory regime, and we're going to trust adults. So starting August 1st, folks can grow this at home. Um, Certainly can't go sell it, but uh, you can, in the privacy of your own home, do what you need to do. One of the things you have to do under this bill is set up this Office of Cannabis Management. Have you thought at all about the person you want leading that office? What kind of person would you be looking for? Yeah, not specifically the person on this, but what I can tell Minnesotans is I've been advocating for this 
you know, basically my whole adult life too. I, I passed the first piece of legislation in Congress moving on, on cannabis. It was medicinal cannabis for the VA. And starting in 2019, my team was working with folks from Vermont and Colorado specifically how to set this up. So a lot of the groundwork was ready. For the 2019 session, Republicans weren't interested in doing it. Uh, that will be out there. This is a management position. They're going to need to make sure that we're regulating these sufficiently. Um, this is a bit of a challenge with the federal government still having marijuana as Schedule 1 and the interface with the banking system. It ends up being a cash-only business, which you have to be very careful of revenues and things like that. Um, so this will be a person that's used to managing big organizations, understands what's necessary. What I can tell folks is uh, the Department of Public Safety and our folks at Correct are already working on what it's going to take on the expungement piece of this. We can start moving on those right away. So we'll take care of a lot of that. The person who's managing this office just basically needs to be good at management of of large organizations and the interface between multiple state agencies. Well, another big organization you'll have to set up is for the paid family leave program. Yeah. Um, how difficult is that going to be to implement these these big offices, especially when it's hard to hire people? Right? Yeah. No, and I'm the reason I'm confident about this, and I tell Minnesotans, look, I came into this job with, again, if you can recall back to the, those, the pre-days before COVID, uh, the Minlarge situation with driver's license was, or was a crisis, was a big thing. Uh, we came in, Democrats and Republicans working together and created an incredibly efficient system and fixed that. And so here's the reason I'm, I'm, I'm very confident we'll get this right. First and foremost, it's going to be operated out of deed. Got a new deed commission over there in Matt Verilek. People are going to get to know him. He is amazing. Um, but they're the ones that run the unemployment insurance trust fund. Minnesota's unemployment insurance system was rated best in the nation during the pandemic. We were the first ones to get results out. Uh, we're the most solvent. If you recall, we did the $3.1 billion of the surplus to pay back the unemployment trust fund. And they have been working with these states for the last three years to thinking about paid family and medical leave. How are we going to implement that? So it's going to take some time. I think folks out there who might be a little frustrated, not going to come online until January of 2026. And and the reason for that is, is to make sure exactly what you're saying, Mike. There won't be any taxes collected before that. We'll front load a lot of those things. There will be a few more folks to do this, but it is going to be very similar. It's an insurance program, very similar to UI, And we've learned to learn from the other states who've done this. Again, 12 states have done it. Some have had a little bit rocky starts. Others have had a little smoother. There's, it's always nice to be first, but it's always nice to watch other people fall into the pitfalls if you don't have to. And and here in Minnesota, my pledge now is you're right. The, the, the capital's empty, but the work really begins now. All the things that were passed, we need to implement. Do you think people trust uh, Democrats to spend all this money wisely? Uh, is there more you need to do to ensure that money isn't being wasted or scammed? Or- oh, yeah, uh, absolutely right. Um, and I we think we've strengthened some of those things, I think, from the grant stuff. And I'll just name it the, the frustration and the anger I have around the criminals who took advantage of the system, the interface between the federal government and the state government around the feeding our future issue. Th- those are very frustrating to me. But we do a lot of things really well. Our IT systems are ranked as well. You know, So I, I do think Minnesotans should be concerned about that. I'm, I am deeply concerned about it. Um, but I also want to note on this that um, Democrats do a pretty good job of balancing budgets. We do a pretty good job if you look at nationally, if you see when the you know when balance our budgets and when there's deficits. And I think this time, I, I get it, people, and my pro tip of the day to people is, is I guess it's easier to run a deficit than it is a surplus because everybody's angry on this. 
increased taxes didn't create this surplus. We didn't raise taxes to create the surplus. We're doing some things now specifically around transportation, a few of those things. But I, I think it's going to be, I would ask Minnesotans, I think it's healthy to be skeptical. I think what you're going to see is these programs will be implemented. I think you want to see potholes fixed. I think you want to see our kids eat. And I hope that people are seeing this. A lot of these things, when we talk about investments, we're going to have to make Minnesota a destination state where people want to be, where they want to create their business and where things work. And I think we're looking at states that have done that or showing some success that Minnesota can be one of those. Well, let me just ask you about that because uh, the Minnesota Chamber of Commerce put out a statement about the end of the session the other night. And part of it said, A unique opportunity to position our state for economic growth and success has been squandered. Do you think you squandered the opportunity? No, I disagree with them on that, and I certainly work with the chamber. I work with other other business groups, but um, I I think if you look short-term, because what I hear from the business groups a lot of times is taxes, but if you go talk to individual businesses, they'll talk about child care. They'll talk about how do I keep workers. They'll talk about things like permitting which are fair. How do we make that a little bit? We were talking mine leases yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, look, we just had uh, Mayo Clinic put out yesterday. They're going to invest $4 billion in Rochester. That's bigger than the entire budget of South Dakota in some cases. So, I mean, I, I, I think this doom and gloom and those that are hoping for disaster, I would ask the Chamber of Commerce to be partners with us. Instead of telling people it's so bad here, why don't you talk about the things that are working well? Because many of their members were the ones advocating for paid family medical leave. We're advocating for us to think about how do we invest in public safety and those things. So I get it that this is, uh, you know, if you wanted tax cuts for businesses, you weren't going to get that this time. But if you wanted to see savings and investments for businesses, you saw a lot about that. I would argue that we're more competitive now than we were before this session started. Well, let me ask you uh, about the other end, because I've been getting a bunch of calls today and a bunch of emails from uh, members of MAPE, one of the state employees unions. And they say that uh, the initial offer from the state on on their contract is too low. I think it's 2% the first year and a percent and a half the second year. Um, Will you come up from that? I am not in the room negotiating. I have been on both sides of the table in union negotiations, this is how this is how these work. Um, I tell people much like the session, and let's wait till see what we get to the end. I think I've made it very clear. I deeply value our state employees. These are the folks that keep our water clean. These are the folks that make sure our corrections are working. These are the folks that plow the roads. Um, so I, I think it's totally appropriate that they're negotiating for the best deal for their members. But I think they know very clearly that I am hugely supportive. And and when you look around us, we're in states that have gone right to work, that have disbanded public sector unions. Um, That's not what we're doing here. And I would make the case to our state employees and the care we show them, they too will benefit from an enhanced paid family and medical leave. They too will be uh, benefit from school lunch programs. They too will see our roads being improved. And so, um, no, this is a process. I'm, we'll, we'll keep working. And I, I think you'll come back as you saw earlier with, when we settled with our personal care attendants in SEIU, we saw a historically positive, uh, agreement. You brought up the Mayo Clinic a minute ago and, um, some of the nurses were upset that uh, the Mayo Clinic uh, was exempted from that bill that would have set up committees in the hospitals to work on nursing staff, and then the other hospitals didn't like it, and eventually yep. the bill turned into a study of the issue. Yep. Um, did you uh, side with the clinic, the Mayo Clinic over the nurses on that one? Well, I said during this, Mike, that first of all, I was very clear that, that I 
did not support the bill as it stood, and I asked for the exemption of the Mayo Clinic. But but it, I did that not because it's nurses versus Mayo. It's because a healthcare system in this country that is still very fragile, um, I would argue, that doesn't work very well right now, and that both sides had valid points. Look, when a nurse tells you they are stressed out since COVID, that they are overworked and they're worried about the danger situation in there – I think it behooves all of us to listen to them. I also think when you have a healthcare system, whether it be Mayo or whether it, it be any of our others, if they're showing us that the, the finances aren't working and here's the impact of that, I think there's more that needs to be done around that. And that's the case that I made. And we're seeing it today that I fully expect, yes, I'm celebrating that Mayo is going to invest $4 billion, but also part of that conversation was help us figure out how employees are a part of this. Help us make sure that we're there. And, and I think I think they understand that. Um, I think the nurses are frustrated, and rightfully so. They've been through it. I, I've been making this case, all businesses, and I would argue covering the news probably the same way. But but three core public sector jobs are really hard to fill right now because I think of the society we're at. Nurses would be one of them. Police would be another, and teachers. And I think all three of those groups are feeling both societal pressures, economic pressures, pressure from the pandemic. Um, and, and my pledge is for us to continue to try and find that compromise. I would hope Minnesotans wouldn't look at this, that this wasn't nurses versus the hospitals or vice versa, that it was a healthcare system that's under strain and people trying to look out for their, their best interests. I heard somebody say the other day that uh, Tim Walls used to be a moderate when he was in the, the Congress, you know, he, he worked both sides of the aisle. He, but nowadays, you know, he supports these, these gun bills. He supports, uh, the tax increases for transportation. He's he's uh, done all these things on the social side uh, with uh, um, transgender rights and abortion yeah. rights. Have you changed? Oh, I suppose we all change a little bit, but I I am I don't find restricting abortion to be a moderate position. Would would me being moderate gone to eight weeks or something? You know what would what would that have been? Some of these things are just such core values. Uh, around that, I would certainly say that there, that as society changed, I've changed with them around the gun issue. Um, I've made no bones about it, and I said this: I was top gun in Congress. I shoot a lot. I own I own firearms, um, and I was one of the kids who you, maybe some of your listeners tell these stories. It, it seems almost like an entirely other world. I took my shotgun with me to school and either left it in my car or left it in my football locker so we'd go shoot pheasants. You know, early season pheasant. Um, those things have changed, and these pieces of legislation are what responsible gun owners do. Um, as far as this, I voted for a gas tax in Congress, thought we should have raised it because I pay my bills. And I think there's a lot of folks out there, that's a dedicated, constitutionally dedicated funding source. And they're saying, why don't you take this money from elsewhere? What's always interesting when you tell people, what are you going to take it from? And where are you going to put it to? I have a responsibility. I, I think a lot of folks, the people who came before us paid their taxes to build the roads. We have a responsibility to keep them up. If you go back and look at 1970, 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010, we're paying less than any of those generations for the maintenance of our roads. And and so I don't think that's a extreme position. Um, the issue I, I ran in 2006 in southern Minnesota, I think maybe the only one of a few people, certainly in rural districts, that I believe people should marry the people they love. And I got asked that. President Obama was running on civil unions. And I got asked in a debate, what do you think about civil unions? Well, they're fine, but I'm not really for that. They said, oh, so you're against that. I said, no, I'm for full marriage equality. So that's who I've been. I've been that person in, in plain sight. I have been willing to compromise, and I've been hit. You know, I'm hearing this week that I side with big business. 
because of mail, side with big business because of Uber. None of those things are are, are totally true. I want to find working solutions. So again, people want to say, well, I, I heard this, that this was a very partisan session. I wasn't going to compromise around abortion because that, that is such a clear issue. I'm not going to compromise on denigrating our transgender kids. Um, for one thing, I don't understand the obsession. We've got things that we need to do. My kind of moderate position was this, and I guess maybe a little bit libertarian. Stay in your own lane. Mind your own business. And that that's kind of where I'm at around the cannabis. Um, I don't want to encourage my kids. I'm not condoning. And I don't want my 16-year-old until he is an adult and can make his own decisions. But I also realize that other adults should be able to make that. So I think that characterization is there that I think I've been able to to hold a coalition together. I got a lot done when I was in Congress, especially around veterans issues. And, and I would argue that working with this legislature, we might have had the most productive uh, legislative session maybe in Minnesota history. And and that takes bringing folks together. Almost out of time. Uh, you've been doing a lot of national interviews. Do you have national ambitions, political ambitions? Well, I have an ambition to make Minnesota known of what we're doing, to lift this state up and be proud of what we're doing. We will own what we do wrong, but I don't. I think we've been a little bit too silent. And I think today seeing President Obama say, look, if you want to see how things can be done, look to Minnesota. That's kind of where my ambition is in that. And I, uh, I've made no bones about it. I want to see Joe Biden get reelected. So I'm going to get out there and help to make sure that happens. Well, with everything you got done this year, what's there left to do next year? <laughs> Implement these things. I think that's what we need to do. And I think as you asked the question, I think this is where the public should keep an eye on things. Be skeptical. Um, be open. Be ready to make solutions. And the one thing I said that I think we learned from Minlars is I'm going to bring the private sector in to help us when we need to to make these things work. Governor Tim Walz, thanks so much for coming by today. It's really important to have a governor in answering questions. We've done it for years, and and we appreciate your doing it. Glad to be here. Have a great Memorial Day to you and everyone. And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're talking about the just-completed Minnesota legislative session, and we're live from the state capitol today. I have to confess that I have wanted to get our next guest on the program for the entire legislative session, but every time I looked, there he was presiding over the Minnesota Senate, and I didn't want to I didn't want to disturb him and I didn't think he'd have time. DFL Senator Bobby Joe Champion of Minneapolis is the president of the Senate and he also chairs the Jobs and Economic Development Finance Committee. Senator Champion, thanks a lot for coming on today. Well, let me say thank you, and thank you for uh, just all the great work that you do. And it was good to know that you're a Mac grad, too. So, Well, there you go, way a long time ago, before <laughs> the Earth's uh, surface had cooled. Now, um, you must be relieved that the session is over so you can finally sit down. Well, you know, I am relieved that the session is over. I'm glad that we were able to uh, get a number of things across the finish line and, of course, get a balanced budget. But I don't get a chance to just kick my heels up. I have to go to my other job, which is being a lawyer. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm exaggerating, but but it was a really busy session, and um, it seemed like the Senate was meeting a lot. Have you ever seen a pace and a workload like this? The answer to that is no. Uh, this is an unprecedented workload and a number of things that we were able to get accomplished. I even wrote some of those things down because if you don't, even when you're talking about it, you 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 will forget about it. Whether it's tax cuts when we first came in and did $100 million in UI benefits on the North Shore to the PRO Act, to the Crown Act, to Juneteenth, to Restore the Vote, which I uh, 
uh, am really excited about 55,000 other individuals that get a chance to vote and driver's license for all. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, of course, food shelves, money for food shelves and catalytic converters, universal mills, you name it, democracy for the people. Uh, But there's just a number of things that we're able to to complete along with, and I always remind people this, that this is a buzz year along with getting a balanced budget forward. And let me ask you about uh, in the Senate in particular, because um, the majority leader, Senator Diedzik, got sick mm-hmm. uh, fairly early on, and she had to have surgery, and she was working remotely and was out for a while. Did that change the way you had to do your job? You know, first of all, Senator Diedzik is just an incredible person. Let's start there. You know, even before uh, having her her health issue, uh, just being a, an engaged person and throughout it changed a little bit for me because not only was I uh, presiding over the Senate and being a chair of jobs, but I took on some of her uh, responsibilities uh, to help and aid and abet her efforts in order to make sure that she had a trusted voice at the table to negotiate, keep our caucus together, but wherever she needed me, but it was always with her in charge. So I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea that I could do anything other than uh, carry out what she wanted to have happen. And because she's our trusted leader and she's that type of person who could be in the weeds, even when she was going through, whether it's chemo or surgery, we always knew that she was in charge and she was always coherent. Mm-hmm. Um and I know you've been in the Senate for about 10 years, right? And That's correct. And you were in the House before that. Um, you, you're one of, you were, up until now, one of the few people of color in the legislature. That changed a lot this year. That changed a lot this year. As you know, we have the most diverse uh, Senate caucus now than we've ever had. Before the others came along, my good friend, uh, uh, former Senator Jeff Hayden, and I always joked and said that we were the uh, 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 a black caucus, right? And Senator Thomasoni would always joke, and, and we allowed him to be an honorary member of our caucus, right? But I told him that he could get out, but I couldn't, right? <laughs> right. And so uh, that's true. So now we have... You know, uh, Senator Muhammad and Senator Umu Verbaden, Senator Amy Quay, Senator Fateh, um, as well as Senator Kunis. So it's just a cross section of people that's there. And what what is beautiful about it is that you get those diverse voices and work experiences and worldviews at the table. And I think it always makes for better public policy. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of uh, younger members this time, too, uh, which we haven't seen for a long time. So. I was just wondering, how did that change things? Did, did did this push to do so much so fast come from the top, the leaders down, or was it from those new members up? You know what? I say it's a mixture of both because the leaders who were at the top clearly understood that we had an opportunity uh, and, and we didn't want to waste the opportunity to get a number of things uh, passed that we have always dreamt about, right? Whether it was restore the vote, you know that that's when Linda Higgins was in the Senate and and our, our attorney general who who, uh, who was then in the House um, pushed for restore the vote back then. And I have always picked it up ever since then. But look at the amount of time. That was r- roughly like 2000 or 2003, but it's 20 plus years. So just think about this. There are a number of issues like that, whether it's driver's license for all, whether it's making Juneteenth a holiday. Those things were important for those who had already been there. Then young people were coming in saying, hey, what about 
the bill that you've been working on driver's license for all, I really want to help push and uh, push it across the finish line. And so that energy and that synergy and that opportunity for us to work together really fueled us to get a number of the things uh, in place that we have right now today. So both can be credited with uh, the robust and impactful session that we've had. Um, one of the goals of this session was that Democrats said was to make the economy work for everybody. Do you feel like you're you got there or you're getting there? I always think that it's a work in progress, but I think we've made such an important dent in that notion that that's really important. So whether it's in healthcare, home ownership, whether it's in uh, education, wealth building. Every budget really sort of reflects our values, whether it's to make sure that nursing homes are able to take care of our seniors or those who are in uh, their golden years. Um, and so I think that's reflective. And it's also reflective in our jobs and economic development budget, where we spent r- roughly $968 million, where we were targeting and specific around women, veterans, and, 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 and communities of color. But also thinking about rural Minnesota and urban Minnesota and how do we uh, uh, support suburbia, right? And also how do we look to the future? So if you look in our bill, we allowed for there to be roughly $500 million that went uh, for uh, companies and individuals who want to compete for, let's say, the semiconductors or, or the CHIPS Act or BioMade, which is around the bioindustrial work. Because guess what? We need to remain globally competitive and also deal with the uh, uh, Department of Defense that says, hey, we have to do something in order to remain or maintain our place globally. Uh, And Minnesota can be a real part of that. And that could also help for us getting livable wage opportunities and getting people off the bench and the sidelines and moving us forward in this green economy. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just uh, highlight one of those areas you talked about, which was called the Promise Act. And this, I think it was $125 million or so, and it's going to be targeted to communities of color and communities that have suffered from discrimination. What what is that money going to do and how is it going to be used? And let me expand that definition. It's also for communities where they're losing uh, a population and aging and all those things are important. And we wanted to make sure that we had a chance to keep our eye on those things and, and, and think about what we can do. Uh, to deliver on our promise to make sure that anyone who has a thought or idea or business or dream, how can we aid and abet and invest in those communities that may have been traditionally disinvested in, right? So it's $125 million. There's um, uh, grants, uh, micro grants for those businesses who have grocery receipts that are less than $100,000. And you also have grants available for businesses who make uh, uh, grocery, uh, who have grocery receipts for less than tax receipts, I should say, Less than $350 million. And then you also have loans that are zero interest, forgivable, uh, but would allow for businesses to be capitalized. And that's for all across the state. So there's intentionality around North Minneapolis, South Minneapolis, St. Paul, but guess where else? Rural Minnesota. So our partners are thinking about technical assistance, capital. How do we move these small businesses forward? Because small businesses are the backbone to our economy. And and last but certainly not least, I think the best way to deal with public safety is to make sure that people have hope and an opportunity. And I think if you deal with the root causes of public safety, that moves us all forward. And not to mention we will continue to be globally competitive as Minnesotans and, and, and not just competitive with Iowa. Um, we're running a little short on time. So let me just ask you, as president of the Senate, 
you know, you're obviously a Democrat and you're, you're talking a lot about DFL, uh, the DFL agenda. How do you keep everybody, you know, civil to each other and, and on track when there's so many partisan differences? You know, I really believe in this tradition of the Senate, which is create an environment so that we all can have robust debate for the benefit of Minnesotans. And I believe as a person who was once in the minority and who's in the majority but still a minority, <laughs> I know what it feels like when when people don't give you an opportunity to talk or people are not listening to you. I, I take it very personal. So I listen when people are debating. I follow along in the bills. I, I ask questions or make sure that there's clarity, but also make sure that we're having, uh, as you heard me say, robust and honest and substantive debate. Creating that environment, how do we do that? So even when tensions get high, whether we're talking about the PRO Act or driver's license for all or something else where people are getting uh, a lot more excited, I remind them that it's important for us to calm the rhetoric and speak to the question. And I'm fair across the board. I believe in being fair. I believe the minorities is equally as important as the majority when you think, think in terms of debate. I think it's important for individuals not to use dilatory uh, opportunities to just prolong debate but not be substantive. I think that is, it, it doesn't credit us as Minnesotans. So, I, so I, I'm really serious about that. Well, DFL Senator Bobby Joe Champion of Minneapolis, the president of the Minnesota Senate, Thanks so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. I'm glad we had a chance to talk and have a great weekend. You too. And thank you again for having me. I look forward to coming again. This is Politics Friday. I'm Mike Mulcahy. And here are some of the voices we heard at the Capitol over the past five months. In my role to call the balls and strikes as I see them, I will do the best I can. And I will make mistakes. And so will all of you. And I, <laughs> I offer to you what I ask that you return to me, which is grace and understanding. Democrat extreme bills. An extreme bill. That's moving at the speed of light. This bill is too extreme for you, your district, or for Minnesota. This is a part of your extreme agenda. When there is full Democrat control and they have full power to rush through and put these bills forward that actually are going to require cleanup work should have been slowed down in the process, do it right the first time, and you don't have to come and fix your mess later. When we won on November 8th and we started thinking about what we needed to do, the mandate we felt we had from the voters was on gun violence prevention, choice, climate change, and democracy. It is important that we don't forget this moment. If we forget this moment, five, ten years later, it will be undone. So the same way that we remember that in 2003 driver licenses were taken, let's keep in mind that in March of 27, 2023, they were restored. Firearm violence is an epidemic. As physicians, we have been scolded for our advocacy on behalf of firearm safety measures. We have been urged to stay in our lane. However, this is very much our lane. There is no guarantee that legislation will prevent all gun-related violence, 
But just because we can do everything doesn't mean we do nothing. Members, I hope you will look past these statements and recognize what is true. The trans and gender expansive community is wonderful and weird and full of life and joy and creativity. We deserve safety and security like everybody else, and we need it right now. I've heard that paid family medical leave is anti-American. That's what I heard from my colleague on the other side of the aisle. The majority of Minnesotans don't believe that because Minnesotans believe in caring for each other. This bill covers more than abortion rights. This gives Minnesotans the right to all reproductive health care. Um, the bill is saying Minnesotans get to make their own choices about when they use contraception, when they have abortions, when they have children. Minnesotans, individuals, you and me. Once Governor Walls signs this bill, we will add to that list other items that belong in the Election Law Hall of Fame. Automatic voter registration, pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds, and penalties for those who deliberately lie about elections with the intent of impeding another Minnesotan's access to the ballot box. And this new law will help in our ongoing work to make our Minnesota elections the most fair, accurate, honest, and secure in the nation. This is what democracy for the people looks like. Thank you. And with that, members, Mr. President, I move that the Senate do now adjourn until Monday, February 12th, 2024, at 12 noon. On that motion, any discussion? Seeing none, all in favor say aye. All those opposed say no. The motion prevails. The Senate is now adjourned. Just some of the voices we heard at the Minnesota Capitol over the past five months. Well, it's a lot quieter now, and there is no rest for the weary. I'm joined, as always, by our team of NPR News reporters to finish out the program. Brian Baxt is here along with Dana Ferguson. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Hi, Mike. Brian, let me start with you. DFLers called it a transformational and historic legislative session. Now that you've had at least a couple days to recover, what do you think? They were really reaching for the thesaurus to find ways to encapsulate just how sweeping this session was. And the agenda that they took on sounded quite ambitious in January, and they checked off probably most of what they they set out to do. Uh, it's going to take us a few more weeks to excavate everything in these big budget bills. There's some stuff that surfaced very late in the game, that including that gas tax that, that wasn't part of the conversation earlier in session. There are things around the delivery fee. There are things around some of these tax cuts that they're doing that are still not quite clear as to how many people and how they'll be rolled out. And Dana Ferguson, while the Democrats are celebrating, the Republicans who are in the minority said the DFL ignored nearly half the state and went on basically a reckless spending spree. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Republicans almost immediately after the session adjourned said, sure, it's going to be a transformational um, set of changes that have been put in place, but not in a good way and not in a way that they think Minnesotans are going to appreciate. In particular, they talked about the new tax increases, new fees that Minnesotans are going to see. And they said people are really not going to be very happy about that. And they were frustrated at the way their opinions were not taken into account during the last few days of session. All right. You both mentioned the taxes, so let's just talk a little bit more about them. 
Um, there is going to be a rebate, but it's not nearly as big as the governor first suggested, right, Tana? That's right. It's about a quarter of what Governor Walls wanted. Um, so folks who make up to about $75,000 will get $260 in rebates. Um, and then about double that if you're married. And then there are additional credits if you have kids, up to three kids. So those will start rolling out, they say, in the fall. Um and it's pretty much automatic based on how much he made in 2021. Mm-hmm. We're still trying to get additional details about that, just how soon they can do it, what it's going to look like. Um, I don't know if Brian wants to add anything on that. Yeah, I think some of it will be automatic. You won't have to do anything. So they have your information. If you fit these specifications under these adjusted gross income limits that Dana mentioned, you'll probably see some money show up in your bank account. Uh, maybe October is, is what we were kind of hearing, but mm-hmm. we'll get more information next week. But as you mentioned, Brian, there is in the transportation bill, the gas tax increase, a couple pennies over the next few years, uh, metro area sales tax, and that fee on deliveries. Um, It really seems like the Democrats kind of swung for the fences on that transportation bill. Yeah, they've been saying for years that there needs to be a better long-term mechanism to fund road projects that the industry can't limp along from year to year because they can't plan and some sometimes construction workers go elsewhere. They think this will provide thousands of ongoing transportation project jobs and improve the system along the way. You know, back to something you asked Dana about how Republicans were assessing the session. They were saying that this could put Minnesota's economy in a precarious spot, but they're in kind of a delicate situation themselves, too. They they can't be out there rooting for the economy to fail, and they acknowledge that. They just say that they're going to be watching, and when things do sort of falter, they're going to be able to point it out, and they, they want to point out that they think it will be tied back to some of these tax increases and the level of spending in this new budget. Well, let me ask you both a question that I asked the governor. Is this budget sustainable, Brian? (laughs) Well, we'll see. You know, one of the interesting points about the budget is about $72 billion for the coming two years. But that drops down to $66 billion for the two years after that. And that's reflective of the fact that a lot of those surplus dollars that they were dealing with was one-time money. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't really go in there and uh, build up a lot of programs for permanent on a permanent basis or a lot of tax cuts on a permanent basis. So the next the next round of budgeting, and I know that's a couple years away, they'll be starting from a lower base. Mm-hmm. And um, marijuana is going to be legal at some point this summer. That's right. Starting in August, it will no longer be a crime to possess a small amount of marijuana if you're 21 and up. You'll be able to grow your own. The actual infrastructure around a retail market that's further along. And I'm glad you asked Governor Walls about how he's going to carry out that program because a lot of people are watching. You know, if if this thing doesn't get up in a, in a fast enough way or a sound enough way, there could be some squawking around that. Dana, uh, there were so many big changes that the legislature passed this year. How much of a difference did it make to have many of these new DFL legislators who are young people, who are people of color, what do you? What difference do you think that made this time? I think they would tell you and DFL leaders would tell you it made a huge difference having these new voices at the table leading a lot of these charges um, and representing communities at the legislature that for some had not been represented before. Um, DFL leaders said these new lawmakers brought ideas forward that hadn't been in this building before or generated more support for some of the proposals like paid family leave, earn sick and safe time. 
um, some of the public safety reforms that we saw that that support wasn't here before. Uh, they have sort of different ends of the spectrum in terms of rural, a little more conservative members that had to come to the table with some of these more liberal urban members. And ultimately, both chambers were able to keep their coalitions together and get almost everything that they wanted across the finish line. Brian, interesting in this week that uh, marked the anniversary of the death of George Floyd three years ago. How much of a difference do you think that made in everything we've seen, the election, the session, everything that happened? Well, as Dana mentioned, there are a lot more diverse voices at the Capitol. We've, this was the most diverse legislature we've ever seen. There were a lot of people who were kind of raised in that activist culture of uh, you know community organizers, and they were here, and they, they feel like they had the pulse of the folks on the ground. And so they pushed a lot of these things. Of course, in the public safety bill, there's that new change around no-knock warrants. And so there's probably going to be very few of those that actually get authorized by a judge going forward. Uh, there are the public safety money isn't necessarily all going to police departments. It might go to some of these community organizations that partner with in violence reduction efforts. So that type of stuff is not the type of thing that would have happened a few years ago. There was a lot of pressure to kind of to be careful about how much they built up the police side of things, that they still wanted public safety. They just wanted to go about it in a different way. I would add, too, that throughout other budget bills, capital investment and others, there's been a focus, too, on some of the communities that were affected by the riots and the violence that stemmed from the murder of George mm -hmm. Floyd, too. Um, the efforts to rebuild businesses on Lake Street didn't really get anywhere under divided government, but quite a bit of funding is going toward that in the current budget, and that's been a big priority for the DFL leaders. Well, I want to thank both of you, Dana Ferguson and Brian Bax, for everything you've done this session. You've been our eyes and ears at the Capitol. So thanks for your great work. I hope you have a nice long weekend to recover, and we'll hear from you later in the summer. You're giving us months off, right? No, sir. Okay, all right. <laughs> That'll do it for our program today. Our producer was Matthew Alvarez. Technical help from Jess Berg and Derek Ramirez. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to the Politics Friday podcast on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live on the radio, tune in each Friday at noon. Join us for interviews with lawmakers and conversations about what's been happening at the Capitol and beyond.